0: Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to worship you. We pray now that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your most holy word, that you'd continue to conform us into the likeness of your son, that by the power of your spirit, you would continue to form our hearts and our minds, that you'd show us more of yourself and that you compel us toward faithful living, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. final words matter. The last words in any situation present an opportunity to leave an impression. And that impression can be good or bad. It could be awkward or resolved. It could be weak or it could be powerful. The final words in a conversation, in an email, in a letter matter. These words are often referred to as a valediction or a complimentary closing. And I can think of plenty of times throughout life where those final words left something less than desirable with you. Think of plenty of awkward interactions. Maybe this has happened to you talking on the phone one time to a person for the very first time, somebody I didn't know, and they close the conversation in a way that they would close the conversation as if they were talking to their mother. <laughs> Something like, oh yeah, great to talk to you today. I love you, bye. And then after an awkward silence and a stutter and an attempt at a course correction, the conversation ends, and it certainly leaves an impression. <laughs> Regularly, Our valedictions are polite or possibly casual in their nature. They're niceties. Think about signing the end of an email or a letter. Most sincerely, Nick, whether I'm sincere or not. Or yours truly, and I'm not yours and I may or may not be true, but yours truly, Nick. And sometimes, sometimes those parting words need to be very intentional and very specific. If you've been quarreling with your spouse all morning and that afternoon you're leaving for a business trip, you better make the last words count because you don't want to leave the impression that you're happy with your relationship to live in a state of tension for a whole week while you are away. And in that moment, casual speech will not do. The final words are important. The final words in Paul's letter called 2 Corinthians needed to count. They needed to land in a certain way. This letter was serious and the church was divided Some had chosen sides with the Apostle Paul, some had chosen sides against him. Some have believed in and were even propagating a false gospel. Some of them were still in the church. Others of them had been expelled. And there were plenty of well-meaning people who were caught in the middle of this church family. How is a church like this going to heal? What would be the catalyst for their unity? How were they to treat each other considering the immense amount of hurt that had occurred? Where did their faith in the Lord Jesus contribute to a way forward? These final words, this valediction was an opportunity to tie together all of the themes of this letter and mere politeness was not enough a casual closing would not do. Their unity around the gospel was at stake and the final words had to count. And as we see these final words in the close of 2 Corinthians chapter 13, we read in verses 11 through 14 a tone that might be surprisingly optimistic despite the seriousness of the letter. Listen to it as I read it. Second Corinthians 13, starting at verse 11, it says this. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Paul concludes this letter with five commands of conduct to the Corinthian church and then a closing benediction. And it's worthy to note that in these last few verses, he begins this conclusion with the phrase, finally, brothers, brothers. He's not talking about or to the people who have believed in an alternate gospel. He is not referencing the fake or the super apostles as they were called earlier in the book. He's talking to and talking about brothers and sisters in the Lord. Those who are living in the tension of conflict and are now trying to figure out how to proceed together in faithfulness to Jesus, and he gives them some commands of how to do that. And to understand how these five commands all sort of come together, and how they're even possible, it's important that you understand the threads that have been underlying the book all the way through. And so what I wanna try to do in the next couple minutes together is to show us how these five commands are really rooted in what Paul has been saying all along. And we'll bring in some of the verses from previous parts of 2 Corinthians, this book that we've now been studying for many, many months, passages we've forgotten months ago, and to see how Paul ties together all of these wonderful gospel themes in these commands for the church. And to do that, we have to begin with the theme of this book of 2 Corinthians, and the theme is very simply this, that there's one true gospel, and God's perfect power is displayed through that gospel even in the midst of our incredible weakness. That God displays his power in the midst of our weakness and it's through the gospel. And this is contrary to what the world might have you to believe. Many in the world would say there are a lot of different gospels or a lot of different forms of good news or a lot of ways to God or a lot of ways for you to have some kind of fulfilled spiritual life. And the way that you validate those things, some in Corinth would say, and many today would say, The way you validate what is truly of God is that the Christians who possess power and health and prosperity and blessing from a human perspective are the ones that have it right. Remember, Paul was denigrated among many of these Corinthians because he was the exact opposite of this. He was physically weak, he was not strong, he was persecuted, he was not popular, and he was unattractive, not attractive. He did not have it all together from the worldly standards, and he was not the picture of worldly success. Such an accusation is seen in 2 Corinthians 10.10. 10. says, for they say, his detractors, His letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech of no account. And yet, God's power was displayed in Paul through his preaching of the gospel. This gospel changes lives. Even though he was weak, God was strong. And this idea of weakness and strength and God's power being magnified as the vessels are particularly weak is displayed again and again and again throughout the book. In chapter four, verse seven, it says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. And later in chapter four, verse 16, we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And this expression reaches its pinnacle in chapter 12, when Paul writes in verses 9 and 10 He, being God, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect. In weakness, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, Paul writes, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weakness and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong." And so God's power is displayed in the life of Christians through our weakness. It's displayed in the simple proclamation of King Jesus paying the penalty for our sins on the cross, rising again from the dead, taking his rightful place on his throne as the ruler over all creation. And God, through those sequence of events, meets people, and when they put their faith in him, God reconciles people to himself through this faith and only by his grace. And he says in chapter 13, in just a previous section, that when this happens, Christ is in you. When you put your faith in him, Christ is in you and you are in him. You are supernaturally united to him. And so now, if all of the people who have their faith in Christ are united to him from all types of sin struggles, all types of ethnic backgrounds, all types of political stripes, all social classes, people on the different sides of conflict, even in the church, then you are necessarily united to those other brothers and sisters in Christ around you. Now that's the gospel foundation of the five commands that he is going to give. The gospel foundation of how a group of people who all believe in Jesus constitute together as a church, understand themselves in the light of God and the light of each other. How then should you act toward the person who is in the pew next to you, whether you like them or not, whether you have the same political party or not, or whether you come from the same neighborhood or not? And Paul gives... Five commands. This is what he says. These commands, one word commands with little explanation attached to them. But when you understand the gospel and you understand the weight of conflict and division among the family of God, you intuitively see how vital these commands are. Finally, brothers, rejoice. That command might feel a little bit odd for a group of people who get together regularly to sing praises to God, to rejoice. Why do you have to be commanded to rejoice? Well, sometimes when people are living in great tension, rejoicing is the last thing we want to do. And This is a command of focus and of faith It's a command that has optimism and expectation attached to it. And the expectation is that a divided church in Corinth would be unified around the gospel as those in error and rebellion repent and are brought back into harmony with the rest of God's people. Paul longed for this for the Corinthians. And we, friends, rejoice the more and more and more that we see God take men and women and boys and girls who are living in rebellion to him and he brings them close and reconciles them to himself through the work of Jesus Christ. We rejoice in that because there is nothing of greater consequence in this life There is nothing of greater joy in this life. There is nothing that will give you more happiness in this life than being in Christ and experiencing all the benefits of this human divine relationship and then seeing others being reconciled and found in Christ as well. This is greater than your greatest amount of career success. This is greater than any amount of financial prosperity. This is greater than the pleasures of sex. This is greater than seeing your kids succeed, whether that's in sports or extracurricular activities or in college or in their career. You, right now, have the opportunity to see and to know and to experience the living God of the universe in all of his power and be reconciled to Him and so we rejoice and we see that if that's true then rejoicing is an attitude it's a perception that has action attached to it rejoicing is based on our perception of what is real of what is true It's not based in our circumstances of what we feel in any given moment. But when you step back and you think of what is seen and unseen, the Bible talks a lot about that. When you exercise ongoing faith, when you live out of a place of conviction, you begin to see the priorities, the hierarchy of priorities. You begin to understand propriety. You begin to recognize that what you see is not always the thing that is the most real. (laughs) And what your circumstances present may only be temporary in their nature and there are eternal realities that are infinitely more important. Paul demonstrates this in chapter 6 when he says in verse 10 that he is always rejoicing, even in the midst of suffering. And in chapter 7, verse 9, when he says he rejoiced because they felt a godly grief and they were grieved into repenting from their sin. And in chapter 7, verse 13 and 16, he rejoices because Titus was refreshed by them and he had confidence in them. And now, Even in the midst of conflict, he rejoices because God is at work in saving sinners among them. And so the first command, Christian, for us is to rejoice. The second we see, stated right after it, is to aim for restoration. Conflict is hard. And I wonder, if you've ever found it desirable to you in the midst of conflict to just avoid the other person altogether rather than to engage in the conflict. Because really there's mainly two types of people in this life. (laughs) The people who see conflict and they run right into the middle of it because they thrive on it and if there's not conflict happening, they will very often create conflict so they can run into the middle of that conflict. That is some of you. And then many of you would say, if there's conflict happening, I'm out. I just want to avoid that person and that issue and leave it alone. And then after a little bit of time and emotional distance, the the scab builds up or the scar tissue builds up. And... We can pretend like nothing ever happened, but here's the thing. Paul says in the midst of this Christian community that we are to aim for restoration. And that means neither diving right into the center of conflict unnecessarily nor avoiding conflict altogether to aim for restoration as the point of conflict is to say we don't want the person that we're in conflict with to go down the street to another church and individually try to find God in the midst of a different community of people. And if they don't go, then maybe we'll go. That's not the way Christians live and function. If God is the God who gives us this incredible gospel of grace, and this gospel is powerful enough to reconcile you, (laughs) even you, even you, even you, Even you in all of your sin to the holy God of the universe who is completely other and perfect in every way, every attribute, every expression of who he is. If this gospel of grace is powerful enough to close that great chasm between you and him, then it is certainly powerful enough to reconcile one sinner to another. This might not be a surprise to some of you, and it will probably offend many of you, but I am no fan of cats. (laughs) And now you've just offended many of them as well. Now, I wanna be clear about that. I don't mind your cat, okay? And if I come over to your house, you don't have to lock your cat in the basement. I'll be nice to your cat, and your cat will probably like me. <laughs> as much as cats like anybody. <laughs> which really isn't a whole lot. A couple years back there was an article on, on a website called The Science of Us with what they called the 17 things we know about forgiveness. Perhaps the most interesting aspect of the study was how they noted who or what does not forgive. And the article summarized the research in this way. As clearly and as plain as day, cats never forgive. (laughs) Scientists have observed conciliatory behavior in many different animal species. The bulk of the research has been done on primates like mountain gorillas and chimps and they often follow confrontation with friendly behavior like embracing or kissing. Scientists have observed similar behaviors in non-primates like goats and hyenas. The only species that has so far failed to show any outward sign of reconciliation Domestic cats. (laughs) Which begs a whole nother question about Christianity and owning cats and all kinds of stuff that we're not going to get into. (laughs) But here's the point when it comes to forgiving others, don't be like a cat. Paul indicates this in Ephesians chapter 4 when he talks the li- about the life of a Christian community. And he says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What is that manner, Christian? All with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Because there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And if those things are true, the one that we are united to, and then we are necessarily united to each other, the goal is to aim for restoration. The third command, and we start to move quickly here, is to comfort one another. We see rejoice, aim for restoration, and now to comfort one another. The hurt was deep because the conflict was serious. When injury is present, the call is to not seek to further injure. It's to comfort one another, and you, each of you have an opportunity to do that for someone who is hurting or someone who is in conflict or intention. a gentle word, a hand on the shoulder, a note that says i 'm praying for you, some perspective from some outside eyes that might not be so close or in the middle of the hurt. This is a great opportunity for Christians to care for each other Paul illustrates this in chapter 7 and verse 6 when he says, the God who comforts the downcast comforted us. How did he do that? Through some sort of incredible, mysterious, supernatural appearance? No. He comforted us by the coming of Titus. Not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me so that I rejoiced still more. Rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, and fourthly he says to agree with one another. To agree with one another means that we have a certain amount of unity around what is most important. Unity is not the same as uniformity. Uniformity would mean that we all have to think exactly the same way and look the same way and act the same way. But unity provides for a level of diversity of thought and opinion, but requires the first order issues to be agreed upon in the life of a local congregation. These are the issues of the most important belief, who God is, the nature of the Trinity, the work and person of Jesus Christ, the nature of salvation, even how we live out that Christian life right now. It still leaves room for differing opinions on matters of secondary or tertiary importance, but agreement on the foundation is vital. Because without it, there is no unity. And God's word is the standard by which we seek that unity. The fifth and final command is to live in peace. Peace is actively sought after. It's not passively gained. You know that in your family, <laughs> with your spouse and your children, that peace is actively sought after. It's not passively gained. You definitely know that in your extended family. And you know that to be true in the life of a local church. Because how does God take people from all different areas of life and opinions and backgrounds and education and socioeconomic status, how does God take someone with different career goals and aspirations and multiplied by hundreds and put them all together to function in the same way or in the same time and in the same place and in the same pursuit of faithfulness to the Lord Jesus, there needs to be an actively sought after peace. (laughs) Friends, when a church is engulfed in infighting, this is not a reflection of the power of the gospel of God. It's just the opposite. I was reading about this the other day and it was interesting that while elaborating on loving one's neighbor, apologist Michael Ramsden spoke of a colleague who while in Asia asked the audience to close their eyes and to imagine peace. And if you were to do that, I wonder what images would fill your mind After a few seconds, the audience was asked to open their eyes and to share the mental pictures of peace that populated their minds. And one person described a field with flowers and beautiful trees. And another person spoke of snow-capped mountains and an incredible alpine landscape that would probably be close to mine. And still another person described the scene of a beautiful, still lake. And after everyone in the room had described their mental picture of peace, there was one thing that was common in all of them. Ramston commented, the one thing that was was common in all of them was that there were no people in them. (laughs) Isn't it interesting when asked to imagine peace the first thing that we do is to eliminate everyone else. (laughs) But friends, this is not the way for Christians. The world around us is constantly at war. It's at war in the boardroom. It's at war in the classroom. It's at war in the workplace. It's at war in the school district. It's at war in the neighborhood. It need not be at war amongst the family of God. One of the marks of Christians is that we live at peace with one another. And so five commands of conduct. Paul gives, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, and live at peace. You might describe it this way, that when the church unites around the true gospel, they will truly unite to each other. When a church, a group of people like you and me, when we unite around the true gospel, we will truly unite to each other. And the application of this sounds really great from a distance, but in all reality, it becomes much more difficult when you are the one who maybe carries the hurt (laughs) or lives in the tension because the temptation is to say, this is another polite valediction. (laughs) This is a courteous goodbye, and we could gloss over the thrust of these commands. But when you stop to think about where this lands, it perhaps calls to mind some of you, for some of you today, someone you need to forgive, (laughs) someone you've been holding a grudge against, someone you have the opportunity to comfort, some way in which you can seek to live in peace. Because here's the thing, community admonitions only ever work if the individuals in the community enact them. These things will only work for us as a whole if you individually enact them. So rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace. D.L. Moody once said, forgiveness is not that stripe that says I will forgive but not forget. It is not to bury the hatchet with the handle sticking out of the ground so that when things get difficult you can grasp it the minute you want it. And these commands are not just moralisms for you, they are birthed out of an understanding of being reconciled to God, and thus united with Christ, and as a result, and consequently, to have the great privilege of being united with one another. Because when a church unites around the true gospel, they truly will unite to each other. And it's interesting, isn't it? In verse 11, these five commands conclude with a promise of presence. Did you notice that? It says that the God of love and peace will be with you. That's how important Christian unity is. God is present when such things occur and it would appear as if he is present in a way that he otherwise would not be if this gospel unity was not enacted. We can make a number of observations in our own church right here. Let me just make one that part of the reason why God has blessed Old North Church so much over the last number of years to the point where we continue to grow, where we continue to see people put their faith in Jesus, where we see God reconcile broken relationships, and where we see people grow in depth and understanding and passion and vigor for the Lord. Part of that reason is because we have a very high level of unity around the true gospel. And that has meant a wonderful unity with each other but we don't take that for granted. You don't rest on your laurels as if those things can never be threatened because they are threatened all the time, through me, (laughs) through you, through each other. But when the church unites around the true gospel, they truly will unite to each other and God is present when they do. Paul concludes his final words with a benediction and it is unlike many of the New Testament benedictions. This is what he says in verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let's just make three quick observations. The first one is that Paul's parting words make reference to the Trinity. Did you notice that? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all three persons, individual persons who share the essence of God is, are at the core of this gospel that he preaches secondly we notice that the reference to the three persons of the trinity are not in the order that we would expect them to be did you catch that you might expect paul to say in that order father son and holy spirit but he doesn't say that he refers first to the son jesus christ second to the father and then lastly to the holy spirit why does he say it that way I think the reason why he does is because he is simply making reference to the order in which we experience God. It is by the grace of the Son, Jesus, that we begin this relationship with God and then eventually we experience God's love in its fullness as we receive the forgiveness of sins through that grace. And he ushers into our life with this overwhelming love of the Father. And following that, we have a unique joy that comes with the fellowship that occurs with God as the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your heart and in your life. These truths of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are not mere polite endings to a letter. (laughs) These truths are worth pondering for the rest of your days. The third observation is that we see three aspects of God's gospel played out in Paul's desires for the Corinthians and for us. Do you notice it? Grace, love, and fellowship. And for all three of these things, the source of them is not ourselves. And the source of them is not each other. (laughs) The source of grace, love, and fellowship is God himself. Grace is simply that favor that we don't deserve. Love is the sentiment of God's affection that is met with his profound and ongoing action and fellowship is that unique binding together that we have with God, the Father and the Son by the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. This is what God does in you and for you. This is why the first command is to rejoice. This is why there is nothing greater in this life than this type of union with Christ that Paul is alluding to. And he reminds us of this in the seminal verse of 2 Corinthians that includes an invitation for you and for me. He says in chapter five, verse 20, through chapter six, verse two, he says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, working together with him. Then we appeal to you, to not receive the grace of God in vain, for he says, in a favorable time I listened to you and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time and now is the day of salvation. That is the invitation for you and for me. You need but take out your hand, your heart, and grasp, what Christ offers to you in forgiveness as you turn away from your sins and allow him to take up reign and residency in your life. When a church unites around the true gospel, they will truly unite to each other. When we, as we close this morning, I think about taking a step back. We talked about perspective a minute ago. In all the things that we see, all the things that we experience, all the things that we feel, the circumstances that might hijack a clear perspective on who we are, on who each other is, and what God is doing in this world, we take a big step back and we glimpse into the heavenlies in the way that God allows us to And we ask the question, how is it possible that God would take all kinds of different people from all kinds of different places and all kinds of different walks of life and all kinds of different political stripes and all kinds of different opinions, how is that possible that God would have them all with him someday? And yet he does. That's the power of the gospel. And we see it expressed in Revelation chapter seven, and I'll read it in a second, but it begs another question. If that's the eternal reality of God and his people, then how can we reflect that reality, even imperfectly, right now? (laughs) After this I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. How can we reflect that reality even imperfectly right now? When a church unites around the true gospel, they will truly unite to each other. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the unity that we have around the gospel. We thank you for the unity that it creates even in our own church family. We pray that our unity would indeed remain based on the most foundational things, that this is not a superficial unity in its nature, but that it is divinely given by you. Father, I pray that you would protect our congregation from attacks against gospel unity. That you would continue to allow us to express this unity in rejoicing and living in peace and agreeing with one another and comforting one another and seeking restoration. God, you are the great king who we unify under Your son, Jesus Christ, seated at the right hand and ruling forevermore is the ruler who purchased this unity by his blood. And we worship you today. In the name of our Savior, we pray. Amen.